Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, greetings, everyone. I want to welcome all those uh, who are watching from our various regionals. The Crowfoot Theatres in Northwest Calgary, our regionals in Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. We are one church that meets in many locations. And I also want to welcome our online audience as well. If you've been watching our services on the internet from home for a while and you live in the Calgary area, we would love to meet you. It would be wonderful to introduce you to the various ministries of our church. So do come and visit us here at Central Campus or any other regional campuses that are closest to where you live. When I preached a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned to you that uh, there are over 30 times in the Gospels where people were amazed at Jesus. His teachings... His authority and his miracles resulted in a response of wonder and amazement. But it is very interesting that there are only two times in the Gospels where it explicitly says Jesus was amazed. Only two times. Now we know Jesus is God. Can an all-knowing God be taken by surprise at anything? Surprise, wonder, and amazement are human responses to something that is unexpected or unusual. So what we see here is a glimpse of the humanity of Jesus. There are some things that took him by surprise. It's a clear display of his human emotions. And interestingly, Jesus was not surprised at people's righteousness. He was not amazed by anyone's morality or the lack of it. He was not taken by surprise at people's smartness or cleverness, but his amazement had to do with their faith. In fact, we see two ends of the spectrum. Once Jesus was amazed at the lack of faith of people, and on another occasion, he is amazed at the declaration of someone's faith. We've looked at the first instance when Jesus was amazed at the unbelief of the people from his own hometown, the town of Nazareth. Jesus that day was astonished that the people who were closest to him, the people who knew him so well, refused to believe in his claims. And Jesus could not perform many miracles in Nazareth because of their unbelief. I told you last time, unbelief is a spiritual force that robs us of God's blessings and limits his activity in our midst. But today I want to talk to you about faith. Because the scripture emphatically declares, without faith it is impossible to please God. To put it in a positive way, faith is essential to live a life that is pleasing to God. There is no other way. And I'm speaking on this theme of faith because uh, the Lord has been challenging me and my own spiritual life to grow in this area. And that is my prayer for all of us here at Center Street Church, that our faith will arise. I want this set of messages to stir our faith as a congregation, to believe God, to demonstrate His presence and power in our lives and in the life of our church. Take note of this. When faith arises, God moves. It's true in the scripture and in all of history. 
We see it being played out over and over. Faith is a trigger that releases God's power. Now, there is only one person in the entire Gospels who amazed Jesus in a positive way. That is quite impressive, isn't it? There's only one person in recorded history who made Jesus go, wow, that's really something. And he didn't wow Jesus with his obedience. It was not his act of generosity or giving that impressed Jesus. It was not his high standard of holiness or moral perfection. But it had to do with this individual's faith. This person wowed Jesus with his faith. Who is this guy? He must be some spiritual giant, a hero of some kind. A rabbi? A Pharisee? Would he be an apostle? No. In fact, he's the last person one would associate with the spiritually elite. He was a Roman soldier. And yet his faith was unparalleled. We're going to look at this fascinating narrative in Luke chapter 7. Would you please stand as we read our text for today from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Father, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we ask this morning that you will cause our faith to arise in response to the preaching of your word. We pray for the ministry of your spirit to flow freely in this place. God, that you will minister to each one of us individually and you will personalize this message for us. Cause these words, Lord, to come alive. And I express my dependence on you. Pray that you will grant me a fresh infilling of your spirit and use me to proclaim your word. We ask this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
You may be seated. Chippy the parakeet never saw it coming. Max Lucado tells us this story of how one second Chippy was peacefully perched in his cage singing happy songs. The next moment, his life changed dramatically. The problems began when uh, Chippy's owner decided to clean the bird's cage with a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> so the lady stuck the nozzle into the cage to suck the seeds and feathers. The phone rang at that unfortunate moment, so she instinctively turned to pick up the phone. And before she had just said hello, zoop, <laughs> Chippy just vanished. The lady gasped in utter horror, put down the phone, turned off the vacuum, and opened the bag. And there was Chippy, still alive, but stunned and covered with dust. So she quickly grabbed the bird and raced to the bathroom, turned on the faucet full blast, and held Chippy under cold running water. And she power blasted the bird clean. Then realizing that Chippy was uh, soaked and shivering, she did what any compassionate uh, pet owner would do. She reached for the hairdryer, and blasted the poor bird with hot air. Chippy doesn't sing very much anymore. <laughs> Can you relate to Chippy? One moment in life, you're seated in familiar territory, the sky is blue, all is calm, and you're coasting comfortably. But before you know, there's a dramatic turn awaiting. The pink slip comes in at the least expected time. The doctor's office calls with an ominous diagnosis. The divorce papers are delivered and you didn't see it coming. You default your mortgage payment and you don't have a clue of what you're going to do next. Anyone can lecture about faith when you're sailing in smooth seas. But faith in the midst of a storm, that's a different story. Will we trust in God's character despite what we see and despite what we are presently experiencing? That is the real test for every single believer. Our passage gives us a glimpse of what such a mind-blowing faith will look like in the face of adversity. This is the kind of faith that even amazed Jesus. Now look at our passage as it starts off uh, in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. And there a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion and his servant were both Gentiles. Centurion is a title given to a captain in the Roman army. So a centurion would have 100 soldiers reporting to him. He supervised this detachment of troops that were under his care. He himself would have been an experienced soldier who had climbed the ranks now to become the captain of an army. Now centurions represented the Roman government that held power in Israel. And as a result, they were hated by the Jews. This particular Roman centurion had a servant who was sick and about to die. 
The Gospel of Matthew also narrates the same incident. And Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13, serves as a parallel passage to our text. Matthew's Gospel gives us some additional information. The servant was not just sick, but he was paralyzed and suffering terribly. He was in intense pain, grievously tormented. Death was imminent, and their only hope was for divine intervention. Our passage also highlights some remarkable qualities of this Roman centurion. He valued this servant who was sick and held him in high esteem. The word used for servant could also be translated as slave. It's the same Greek word, doulos. The word Matthew uses in his gospel to refer to the servant actually means a young boy. So as you piece all this information together, we find out that the person who is paralyzed and lying in his deathbed is a young boy, a boy servant, a juvenile slave of this Roman centurion. Now, the Romans were considered to be notorious in their treatment of slaves. So slaves were branded, mutilated, sexually abused, and treated with no respect. They were completely under the mercy of their owners. So when a slave became sick, they had no value for the master, so they would be discarded and replaced. But this Roman centurion is a compassionate man who cared for this slave boy who was in deep distress, and he wanted him to get well. The Roman centurion had heard about Jesus and his miracle-working power. And being a Gentile, he thought the best way for him to access Jesus was through the help of the Jewish elders. We see a miniature miracle here in that these Jewish leaders approached Jesus on behalf of the Roman centurion, and they actually had lots of nice things to say about him. Now, it's very uncommon and abnormal for Jewish elders to speak well of Roman centurions. Do you know what the closest equivalent of that would be? It's like Donald Trump having something nice to say about Hillary Clinton. <laughs> so that's the kind of effect it would have had on the original readers of Luke's gospel when they read about Jewish leaders interceding on behalf of a Roman centurion because there was such hostility between the two groups. For what was the job of the Roman centurion? To make sure Israel paid their taxes to Rome and subject them to Caesar's rule. So in light of this, it is interesting to see what the elders had to say to Jesus about the centurion. Look at verses 3 to 5. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So the Jewish leaders are basically saying to Jesus, this is not just another typical Roman centurion. This is one special dude. He loves our nation. He may be a representative of Rome, but he has a heart for our people. And not just that, this wealthy Roman centurion made a huge financial donation to build our synagogue. 
And that is almost unheard of. And all of this shows us something. This Roman centurion must have been a God-fearer. A God-fearer is a term for a Gentile who worshipped the God of Israel, but had not officially converted to Judaism or adopted the rituals of the Jewish faith like circumcision. But they had come to faith in the God of Israel. So when Jesus heard about this Roman centurion, he was quite willing to help. So Jesus decided to go with the Jewish elders to the Roman centurion's home to heal the boy. But here's a dilemma. If a Jew were to go into a Gentile house, he would risk being defiled. The Roman centurion had a high cultural quotient. Being fully aware of uh, the Jewish dilemma, he sent another delegation of people, this time his friends, to convey a second set of message to Jesus. Here's the message, the last part of verse 6. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, we see a big difference in perspective between the Jewish elders and the words of this Roman uh, centurion himself. Because the elders had told Jesus, this man deserved his help. He's worthy of it, for he's a good man. If there's anyone who is deserving divine help, it is this man because he loves our people and he built our synagogue. But the centurion is not bragging about his good deeds. Instead, he says to Jesus, I am not worthy. In fact, I don't even deserve to have you come under my roof. I'm not a righteous person by any means to earn God's favor. So you can see his humility on display. He's not showing off his position or wealth or power. He was not making a demand. This was a plea. And we also see something else. The centurion, as you know, is a captain in the army who understood everything about authority and how authority functions. He himself had been commissioned by Rome and had the authority of the strong Roman Empire backing him up. So he knew the power he commanded over the men subject to him. All he had to do was to issue a command, and it was the obligation of those under him in order to fulfill it. Now that is true of military today. A Jordanian military general was quoted saying, when I issue a command to my men, no man is exempted, no questions asked, no excuses offered. When I issue a command to my men, no man is exempted, no questions asked, no excuses offered. Anyone who has served in military knows when a serviceman or servicewoman willfully disobeys the lawful orders of a superior officer, it is called insubordination and it will never be tolerated in the military. So this Roman centurion who knew all about authority 
demonstrated a remarkable understanding of the authority of Jesus. The centurion is essentially saying, if he had so much authority because he represented a powerful earthly empire, then how much more authority Jesus has as the representative of a heavenly empire? Jesus didn't have to come under his roof in order to heal the boy. He could do it remotely. He didn't need to offer a long prayer. He didn't have to perform an elaborate ritual. He didn't have to sweat or toil. A word from him would be sufficient to raise the sick boy. Now that is remarkable faith. And just so you understand the profoundness of the centurion's statement, look at Jesus' response. Jesus stopped in his tracks, and this is what he said in verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Jesus was amazed at the centurion's faith. The word for amazed or marveled is the same Greek word that is being used to describe people's reaction to the miracles and authority of Jesus. And it's the same word that was used when Jesus visited the synagogue in the hometown of Nazareth. If you remember the text from Mark chapter 6 when I preached last time, the people of Nazareth questioned the authority of Jesus and his messianic claims. They basically said, who does he think he is? We know him. We know his parents and his siblings. They are just an ordinary family. This is the kid who grew up in our neighborhood. What right does he have to make such extravagant claims? And Mark chapter 6 verse 6 tells us, he, Jesus, was amazed at their lack of faith. The people of Nazareth express their lack of faith by denying the authority of Jesus. And it caused Jesus to marvel at their unbelief. But you come here to Luke chapter 7 and we see a complete contrast here in that the centurion accepted the authority of Jesus. He believed that a single word from Jesus was enough to get the job done. And Jesus was amazed. It's the same word, but the only difference is this time he was amazed at the centurion's faith. Now here's an important point as you compare those two narratives. The difference between faith and unbelief lies in our perception of Jesus' authority. Unbelief rejects the authority of Jesus, while faith yields to it. And this Roman centurion, this Gentile, this person who was despised by the Jews, this ethnic outcast, had more faith than every single person in Israel, including the apostles, because he professed a humble trust in the authority of Jesus. I want you to get this. Although the passage presents the centurion as an epitome of faith, 
The focus is not on the centurion's faith, but the spotlight in our passage is on his grasp of Jesus' authority. That is the key. In fact, that's what amazed Jesus. The centurion did not put his confidence on the quality or quantity of his faith, but on the power of Jesus and what he could do. I want you to listen here. There are lots of distorted teachings on the subject of faith, especially the name it and claim it version that is being taught in some Christian circles of the health and wealth gospel where the emphasis is on the power of our words. So walking by faith is seen as denying the reality of the situation, and one has to declare their way out of troubles through positive words. Now that's basically a call to put your faith in faith instead of your faith in God. And that's why it's plain nonsense. Now look at the centurion who was presented as an exemplary model of faith that even amazed Jesus. The centurion did not say, I speak words of faith, I confess, my servant is getting better. He has no paralysis, every cell in his body is recovering. That's not a good model of prayer. Rather, the centurion sees the desperateness of the situation. His servant was dying, and there's nothing he could do about it. So he appealed to Jesus and sought his help, for Jesus is the one who has all authority. And I tell you, it does not matter how much you confess and claim, you don't have the power to alter the circumstances of your life. Our confessions do not create or alter reality. Only Jesus is capable of that feat. And that's why we don't rely on the power of faith, but on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And like the Roman centurion, our confidence is not in our confession. Not in saying the right words or repeating a formula, but our confidence is in the truth that all things are subject unto Jesus. I can make positive confessions until the cows come home and nothing is going to change in my life. But when Jesus speaks a word, there is creative power, and therein lies our trust in the words of a mighty Savior. Now think about this. There was a point in time when there was no universe. But Jesus spoke a word, and the entire universe came into being. There was a time when the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the face of the earth. But when Jesus spoke a word, there was light. Not only was the world created by the words of Jesus, but Hebrews 1.3 declares the entire universe is sustained by the words of Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Jesus spoke a word, and the man with a legion of demons was instantly set free. Jesus spoke a word in the middle of a terrible storm, and millions of horsepower of wind forces halted, and millions of gallons of violent water turn as placid as a lake. 
Jesus spoke a word, and a man who had been dead for four days walked out of his grave. The centurion believed in the powerful words of Jesus. Just say a word, and my servant will be well. And look at what happened when Jesus uttered those words. Verse 10. And the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So this young boy in deep distress, paralyzed, enduring intense pain, was well that very moment. The words of Jesus are still powerful because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Here's two applications for us. First of all, it's not about how much faith we have, but it's the object or focus of our faith that really matters. The question is not whether our faith is sufficient, but the question is the sufficiency of the one in whom we have put our faith. Here's the second application. A strong faith cannot coexist with a low view of God. They are incompatible. Faith calls for a high view of Jesus. To see him as the one who has all authority and whose single word can make a difference in our life today. In fact, that's what biblical faith is. It's coming to terms with Jesus' authority and power and being in awe of it. So let me ask you, how big is your Jesus? Is he all-powerful, almighty? Can you trust him to mend the brokenness in your family? to repair your marriage, to heal you of your sickness? Is he big enough to provide you in times of financial difficulty? When your Jesus meets with resistance, is he able to overcome it? Can his sovereign purposes be thwarted? How you answer these questions will determine your faith. Look at the God of the Bible. This is what he says about himself. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is the God of the Bible. He's not a small tribal God. He's not a God with limitations who is struggling to organize our world. This is not a weak God who is unsure about the future. No, Isaiah 46 shows us the Lordship of God. He is unique in his knowledge, sovereign in his control over the future, consistent in the way he carries out his purposes, and he is faithful and true to his promises. And there is absolutely no one like this God. He is beyond comparison. (laughs) 
Do you know the reason why you struggle with your faith? It's because of a low view of God. If our mental conception of God is flawed, if we shrink God in our minds, then our problems seem to loom large and look gigantic. Our prayers become weak. Our confidence starts wavering and our security is shaken. I want us to look at that verse in Isaiah 46 again and substitute the word God with Jesus because that is quite legit because Jesus is God. I am Jesus and there is no other. I am Jesus and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand, and I, Jesus, will accomplish all my purpose. Is this your Jesus? If this is your Jesus, then you can trust in him at all times because this Jesus is trustworthy. And that is the foundation and bedrock of our faith even when the economy is taking a free fall, when job situation is tenuous, when there is political instability in our world, when terrorism seems to be on the rise, when there are problems in relationships, when we have a health crisis, when our marriage is rocky, when we are faced with insurmountable challenges and odds. Faith looks at all these problems in light of Jesus' authority. And guess what? There's nothing you and I will ever face that is outside of his jurisdiction. Because we have a Jesus who is greater than all of these problems put together, and that brings everything into perspective. Two thousand years ago, that day in Capernaum, Jesus witnessed unprecedented faith in the centurion. And it prompted Jesus to say, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. Because most people in Israel fail to come to terms with Jesus' authority. The centurion did not shrink Jesus. He saw him for who he is. He believed in the power of his words and that everything is subject unto Jesus. And that's the kind of faith that amazed Jesus himself. Now ask yourself this question. If I believe in the absolute authority of Jesus over all things, how will it impact my life? What would it change? Let me close with this story. A pastor had been on a long flight from one city to another. The first warning of the approaching problems came when the sign came on the airplane, fasten your seatbelts. And after a while, a calm voice said, we shall not be serving beverages at this time as we are expecting a little turbulence. 
please be sure your seatbelt is fastened. And as the pastor looked around the aircraft, he noticed that the people were getting apprehensive. The voice of the announcer came back again, and this time she said, we are so sorry that we are unable to serve the meal at this time. The turbulence is still ahead of us. And then the storm broke. The loud noise of thunder could be heard even above the roar of the planes, of the, in the, the engines of the plane. Lightning lit up the skies, and within moments, that great plane was like a cork being tossed around in an open ocean. And all the passengers were panicking, alarmed. Some were seen praying. The future seemed uncertain, and many were wondering if they would ever get through the storm. But in the midst of the chaos and absolute pandemonium, the pastor noticed that there was a little girl sitting in one of the seats. And apparently this storm meant nothing to her. She was reading a book, and everything within her small world was calm and orderly. Sometimes she would close her eyes, and then she would start reading again. But there were no signs of fear or worry or panic. And the plane was just being buffeted by this terrible storm, and all the adults were scared to death. This little girl was completely composed and unafraid. The pastor could hardly believe his eyes. And the storm subsided, and the plane finally reached its destination safe and sound. And all the passengers were hurrying to disembark. But the pastor, out of sheer curiosity, went to the little girl to find out how she remained so peaceful in the middle of such a terrible storm. And the little girl replied, because my daddy's the pilot, and he's taking me home. Friend, life brings its share of storms. And at times, there is absolute chaos and pandemonium all around us. But we can be at peace, not because we know how to navigate through the storms of life, not because our faith is so strong and rooted, because we have a pilot who can handle any kind of storm. And faith tells us that the one who is in charge of our life is not just an all-powerful God, but he's also your daddy. He loves you, and he wants the best for your life. He has promised to take us home, and you and I can count on his words ask all of us to stand as we come to an end. Biblical faith is a response to God's character. It's not something you work up in your own strength. But what you really need is to take a fresh look at the character of who God is. And faith is a byproduct. It will arise as we come to terms with the authority of Jesus. Let me read that verse for you again from Isaiah 46. I am Jesus, and there is no other. 
I am Jesus, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I, Jesus, will accomplish all my purposes. Is that your Jesus? This is a moment I want to give you to let that vision sink into your heart. To believe from the depths of your being and the character and the nature of who Jesus is. And look at your problems in light of this truth. And you will see that this faith arising from deep within you. It's a natural byproduct of our confidence in who God is. I want to give a moment of silence for us to reflect and ponder on what we've heard. Some of you, you're carrying some deep burdens. You're facing insurmountable challenges in your life right now. Look to Jesus. Look to who he is. And do what the Roman centurion did. Humbly acknowledge your need for him. Declare your desperate dependence and cast all your burdens at his feet. You know, if you feel comfortable, I want to encourage you to even come forward and kneel at this altar because that is a demonstration of your faith, of your humility and your need for God in your life. Let's maintain a moment of silence and I'll close this in prayer. Father, we ask right now that you will open the eyes of our heart to see an exalted vision of Jesus, the one who is seated on the throne, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We pray that you will grant us, Lord, a fresh understanding of the authority of Jesus over our lives, over this universe. And even as we come to terms with it, we pray that our faith will arise. That we will believe from the depth of our heart that we serve a great and mighty God who has the best in mind for us, who loves us unconditionally. So we look at our problems in light of this new reality. 
I pray, Lord, that our anxieties and fears will be washed away. And a deep sense of your peace and security will fill our hearts. And we will have an unshakable confidence that comes from knowing you and abiding in you. That you will not leave us or forsake us, no matter what we are going through in our life. But you will hold our hands and walk with us. So Lord, we pray, give us grace and strength for the journey. We pray that we will see your hand move in our lives and answering our prayers and doing the impossible. That ultimately Jesus will be magnified and glorified, exalted and lifted higher in our life and in our church. And even as we leave this place, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.